Welcome to Bespoke Investment Group's Bespoke Cast. I'm George Perks, macro strategist for Bespoke Investment Group. Bespoke Cast features conversations with markets professionals and economists whose views we find interesting or insightful into the world of finance and economics. If you like what you hear today, you can learn more about our firm by visiting our website, bespokepremium.com. Bespoke offers financial market research and insight to investors of all types, ranging from individuals to large institutions. You can follow us on Twitter at Bespoke Invest. If you enjoy BespokeCast, we would also appreciate you reviewing the podcast in the iTunes store or on your favorite podcast platform. Reviews help us gain visibility and also help us improve the podcast in future episodes. Welcome back to BespokeCast. I'm George Perks, macro strategist for Bespoke Investment Group, and we are thrilled to have with us this week Ernie Tedeschi. He's the policy economist and head of fiscal analysis at Evercore ISI and coming to us from Washington, D.C., where he keeps a close pulse on what's going on with fiscal policy, what's going on with monetary policy, and everything related to that space. So Er Ernie, uh, welcome to BespokeCast. It's great to have you on this week. Thanks for having me on, George. Before we launch into talking about some of the very exciting developments we've seen in fiscal policy this year, in monetary policy this year, um, and some of the recent data we've gotten, including the CBO report that was released earlier this week, uh, we'd love to get a little bit of background from you. Um, so you are currently at Evercore ISI, which for those that aren't familiar is a research shop. Uh, actually, it's somewhat similar to Bespoke um, in a lot of ways, although much larger. Um, Ernie, you originally did undergrad at Stanford and then moved on and did a master's in public policy at Berkeley. Is that correct? That's right. And have you found that sort of background in public policy as something that's that's been um, necessary for doing what you do? Or do you think that it's sort of, um, you know, a, a field policy analysis that that's open to other people? In other words, you know, if you want to be an electrical engineer, you need to do electrical engineering when you're in school. For policy analysis, do you think that's true too? You know, I... I I think that there are a lot of avenues to policy analysis today. Um, uh, I liked public policy because it's an interdisciplinary uh, uh, sort of approach to things. So there's a little bit of economics, there's a little bit of statistics, there's some political science, uh, some sociology in there too. And um, it's nice because they really take a holistic approach um, to thinking about how policy affects the world. But I think there are lots of different ways to approach it. Nowadays, in particular, I mean, you'll appreciate this. You and I follow each other on Twitter. Um, I think so many, there's so much value add from data-driven questions that like if you were just a straight up statistician or a data scientist, um, I think that there's a lot in public policy that you could add. Uh, nowadays, because so many questions revolve around that. Absolutely. And, you know, full disclosure, I also had an undergraduate degree in public policy, and it sounds very similar to the work you did at Stanford um, as an undergraduate, you know, the, the framework as opposed to um, a, a relatively disciplinary focus. Um, public policy, where I learned it at Duke University, was very much trying to give you a tool set to engage with the world as opposed to trying to um, introduce you to a discipline that that sort of has a, a, a narrow approach to things. And, you know, you and I both do a lot of work with economic data and economic theory. And so, you know, there are certainly things to take away from that or, you know, statistics or um, even computer science for some of the work you do that I've seen you post. Um, but have, being able to pull from all those toolkits is incredibly important because policy analysis involves real engagement with the real world and not sort of 
you know, writing a paper on something relatively obscure or doing stuff that's purely theoretical. Yeah, the, the way I describe it to friends is that, you know, peer economics or peer statistics teaches you to write the code to do the analysis for the paper. Public policy teaches you how to write the executive summary that's going to convince, you know, the cabinet secretary that you're working for to actually do, you know, to actually implement the recommendations that are in the report. Bingo. And it turns out that for the financial markets, that kind of skill set is really, really useful because people yeah. need to understand what's going on. You know, the whole uh, look something up and write it down approach. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. Does that sort of summarize well a lot of what you do at ISI? Yeah, I mean, so uh, like just to put kind of a more formal spin on it. So, so you know, so you said I'm head of fiscal analysis. So anything budget tax related, I follow whatever core ISI. Um, actually, the bulk of my time is spent following monetary policy at Evercore ISI. Um, that's uh, particularly nowadays, both in the United States and Europe. Um, we do a little bit of Japan uh, and then uh, a, a little bit in, in, in England, but mainly the Fed and the ECB um, we follow. Uh, so I'm uh, so, so, so the head of our team, Krishna Guha, uh, is the head of our monetary policy analysis. And so I support him Actually, you know, probably 60 to 70 percent of my time is um, uh, spent digging into that. So just like just policy all around lots of macro. Right. Which is a very expansive space. I mean, it's hard to disentangle them, too, especially these days. Um, just before yeah. we get sort of into more those questions a little bit more and, and we're going to spend a lot of time digging into that. Um, you spent some time at the Department of the Treasury. Uh, you've worked at Pew, which is sort of not um, a traditional uh, place where someone in the who, who works in uh, financial research or economic research necessarily comes from. Um, can you talk a little bit about your career path and, and what led you to, to Evercore ISI from uh, your master's in public policy in the mid-2000s? Yeah, sure. Um, so... Uh, when I came out of my MPP, I, the first thing I did was I worked in municipal finance because I wanted, uh, like one foot in the private sector, but one foot in public service in some way. And so I thought that, um, I, I worked for a private firm, but all of our clients were, um, public entities that were trying to issue debt, usually for infrastructure of some sort. And, and that was sort of, that was sort of a nice balance between, the, the, those two worlds. Um, and uh, so I did that for a couple years and then I really wanted to get in the federal space. I, I was doing municipal finance in California um, and that was at the beginning of the crisis. So that was 2008, 2009, which is really interesting time to be in municipal finance because when I started my job, you know, they were telling me the ins and outs of how auctions worked and how, you know, you find, how you found underwriters, et cetera, so forth. And then all of that froze up when the crisis happened. And, you know, suddenly, you know, what began as an auction process turned into, you know, a pre-negotiated sale um, because there just weren't enough um, sort of buyers for municipal bonds at first uh, to be able to, for that market to function properly. Uh, so it was fascinating to be there. Um, and then I wanted to get into the, into the federal space out here in DC. And uh, I moved to Pew because they were they were creating a shop that focused on federal fiscal policy. Um, they were trying to they were anticipating the Simpson Bowles Commission, which you recall in 2010 was the 
big sort of grand bipartisan commission that was trying to finally and forever solve America's fiscal problems by, you know, curbing Social Security, curbing Medicare, you know, uh, doing something with taxes and, and trying to come up with a compromise that would get both parties on board. And in the end, it failed. Uh, it And uh, it created a couple ideas that were revisited several times later, but for the most part, the entire endeavor failed. Um, and we had a big debate about it. And we'll talk about this more. But it, what, what's sort of interesting, retrospectively, looking at my time there is just, um, you know, as much as I admire the sort of bipartisan spirit of that whole endeavor, we really, I, I feel like in retrospect, we really didn't understand the nature of the economy that we were in at the time and the nature and just how fiscal policy was changing. Um, so uh, make a long story short, I, I think that what the ideas that they were throwing around at Simpson Bowles were better than what we ended up doing with the sequester and you know, very sudden um, measures of austerity. But at the same time, you know, we we just weren't in a position in 2010 to know what was actually going on. Yeah, like sort of dealing with um, grand long-term budgetary matters when the House is sort of still on fire as far as um, post-crisis demand shock goes is kind of like a – the timing was wrong. Right. Like like and and I think yeah. you can see in the in the longer history of post-crisis fiscal policy that the um, by by sort of starting down that road in 2010, it set a precedent around, you know, the budget deficit or the state of, you know, fiscal policy being this massive problem, which was actually something related to an endogenous factor as far as the the, the federal government goes um, for most of that period. You know, not entirely. Um, and we'll, we'll talk about this a little bit more later, like you said, but, it, you know, the, that was not the right time in 2010. You know, in 2012 and 2014, maybe it's a different story, but, but at the end of the day, instead of dealing with the underlying problem, which was this massive collapse in demand related to things that had nothing to do with with basic fiscal policy. Uh, you know, you're 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 trying to focus on the wrong ball at that time. So anyhow, we'll, we'll return to that um, just to finish out your CV. Um, after a couple years at Pew, you moved to the Department of the Treasury. Yeah. So uh, so one of my reports uh, at Pew was about uh, actually about the um, Budget Control Act, the piece of legislation in 2011 that came after the government, the government shutdown and the um, the debt downgrade uh, in August of 2011. Um, uh, the Budget Control Act was the piece of legislation that introduced the sequester. I did a report on that. Uh, the folks at Treasury really liked it, and they they came to me and they asked me if I wanted to come on as an economist there and. I said, yeah, that's that's awesome. Um, so, um, so I worked in the Office of Economic Policy uh, there at Treasury, uh, which was, and I worked closely with um, a couple other people. I worked with um, Eric Dash, who is a he was a former bank he was the former banking reporter for the New York Times and was there at Treasury with me. He was in the um, Public Affairs Department at Treasury. And then I worked with uh, Charlie Anderson, who's uh, now on the Hill. He's a policy analyst there, and we were sort of a uh, we we were sort of a um, uh, like a policy SWAT team was what they called us in the building. So, uh, like any economic or sort of policy related issues that came up in the building that um, 
that needed sort of a quick turnaround, something that was done well, you know, analyzed well, written well, and could be released publicly if need be, but not necessarily. Um, we sort of tackled as a team of three. That sounds like an awesome job, by the way. I mean, just, I mean, maybe not all of our listeners will will find that as appealing sounding as I do, but just the idea of like, you know, being that guy who, okay, well, you know, um, we have a problem. We need to do some research on it. We need to, you know, summarize that into something that's digestible. Like that is a huge part of what I do day to day. But but especially working within the within the government, that sounds so interesting. Like just be, having that mandate and and really challenging too in in ways that I couldn't I, I couldn't have anticipated beforehand. Like you know, like I'll give just one example. So uh, Secretary Geithner came to us and said, you know, I'd like you guys to sort of, you know, basically write a report about how uh, the bailouts, how TARP has been going and sort of compile, um, go to all the different, you know, offices within Treasury and kind of come up with one sort of grand unified um, report card or assessment of, of how each component of TARP has been going. And we said, oh, that's great. You know, so we'll just go to the different offices. We'll get data, you know, and we'll we'll put it all in one thing. And, you know, it'll be a it'll be a short little report card. Well, not everybody agreed on like how you would even measure things like, you know, how you know, how how much have the banks been paying back? You know, what is the what is the proper way to talk about money out the door versus money coming back? You know, what what interest rate assumptions do you use? And they all had really compelling arguments for it. And it wasn't just like turf protection or, you know, bureaucratic backbiting. It was, you know, these were real serious issues that different people were raising. And it ended up being, you know, for something that was supposed to be like a four page report, it ended up taking us months just to like get people in the room, get everybody talking in ways that they they hadn't before because they hadn't, you know, they hadn't had to talk uh, in the same room before. You know, they, they all had purview over uh, over different aspects of the program, um, that didn't interact with one another. And, uh, so it was, it was just a fascinating challenge in ways beyond just the data collection. So since, uh, you, you spent two years, um, at treasury and then, uh, since December of 2013, you've been at, uh, Evercore ISI. Um, so that closes that circle. Um, I think it would be helpful now to sort of talk a little bit about the big news item this week. Um, we will return to the fiscal stuff and the fiscal versus monetary stuff later, um, you know, the history side of it that we were mentioning. Um, but uh, this week, the CBO released its 10-year uh, budgetary and economic projections, uh, which is sort of like a big benchmark for policy analysis in the United States because uh, the CBO is widely regarded as one of the more important forecasters, um, not just for economic growth and for um, how people are thinking about the state of the economy, you know, that sort of thing, but also for the path of the federal government uh, budget outlays and revenues and the, and the difference between those which is the deficit. Uh, so it gets a lot of attention. Uh, we wrote a report on it this week um, and obviously there's lots of media coverage. Uh, do you have any, like just before we like launch into sort of detail around it, do you have any um, quick takeaways from that um, or stuff you'd want to say about the CBO as background? Um, so we wrote a report on it it actually came out this morning too. We um, and and our takeaway from that was we actually focused um, a little bit more on the macroeconomic implications of what the CBO was saying. And and I think the bottom line for us is 
we're sort of at the confluence between fiscal and monetary policy. We're looking really hard, not at 2018 or 2019, but like 2020, 2021, because we figure you're going to get a lot of um, fiscal impulse from the tax cuts and the, the two year spending deal uh, over the next two years. Um, the Fed, you know, the Fed can choose how they're going to approach that. They can raise rates to try to sort of contain overheating in the economy. They can accommodate it for a little while. But at some point, you get to 2020, right? And uh, a couple of different things have to happen. Um, the You have to decide whether the budget deal is going to be extended at that point. Um, and the Fed has to decide how it's going to approach policy. What's interesting is that what CBO told us is that there's there's actually not that much danger of hitting a pothole in the economy come 2020. Um, CBO has to assume that uh, CBO is constrained to look at current law, right? Which is which means that they have to assume that anything in the tax cut legislation that's meant to expire does expire, and that the budget deal doesn't get extended after 2019 because that's you know that's written into law right now. Um, and yet, even despite that, they still had a little bit of spillover to 2020 growth. I think they had plus 20 or 30 basis points to, to 2020 growth that they upgraded off of their last forecast. So, the, so they're telling us, okay, there's not there's not that big a risk of a cliff happening in 2020. Um, our takeaway was so so that so that sort of downside risk, right? In a sense, is um, they're telling us. Is, is not as large as, as we might fear. But on the other hand, you have this upside risk of overheating, right? Which is that CBO is telling us that they're upgrading their 2020 growth forecast even with this fiscal cliff, even with the budget deal not being extended. And they, they assume, and we can talk more about this in detail later, they assume that the Fed is hiking rates up to 400 basis points in 2020. Sorry, that's, um, that's, that's to a level of 400 basis points, not... Yeah, to a not level, 10 yeah, so yeah, to a level, yeah, that's right, not 10x, uh, to a level of 400 basis points nominal uh, uh, up through 2020, um, uh, even with this fiscal cliff. And so then you take a step back and like, uh, you know, we tend to think that um, tax cuts and spending at the federal level is very sticky from a political standpoint. So it's, we think it's very likely, particularly in an election year like 2020, that the budget deal is going to get extended. Um, I, I don't think that there's anything big on the tax side that that really comes up until about 2022, 2023, but anything on the tax side that needs to be extended will probably be extended. Um, and so then you run, you know, so, so then that implies that uh, you would have even more of a growth boost than what CBO is implying in 2020. And the Fed would have to, you know, tighten even more than what CBO shows. Now, we don't necessarily buy what the CBO is saying in terms of how long, uh, you know, the, the lags and the spillover from growth, um, from fiscal impulse lasting to 2020. Um, we, we're not as optimistic as they are about um, sort of the, the, the lags of the multipliers involved. Um, and we're not there with them in terms of what the Fed's reaction function will be. Um, but at the same time, if you buy what CBO is saying, then that should make you a lot more worried about overheating come 2020 than than you were before. Yeah, the the thing I did to sort of put this into a into a single read number was to look at the CBO's 
the difference between what the CBO estimated as the potential growth of GDP or the potential level of GDP and their actual forecast for GDP. So it's it's the difference between what they think the economy can um, grow to without overheating versus the the level of growth or the level of output they think the economy sure. is going to get to. Um, yeah. So the difference between the revision um, on that number was or sorry, the 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 output gap, the real output gap as of Q3 2019 is up to 1.2%. Um, right. Their most... Output surplus, you're saying? Yeah, exactly. Yeah, it's, it's, right. So we usually talk about it right now in terms of an output gap because real GDP has been well below potential GDP for a long time post-crisis. But um, so that's the output gap. The, you flip the sign because now real GDP is going to be above what the CBO estimates is potential GDP. Yeah. Um, and that number is 1.2%. So for context... In the prior estimate, which was from June of last year, um, the CBO's number was that that would peak, that figure would peak in Q4 of 2018 at less than 20 basis points. So right. you've seen a huge change, like really, like like that's a that's a big change from over the course of less than a year in terms of the difference between potential and actual output in their forecasts. And that implies that the economy is going to run way hotter. And it, really all of the, what I'm saying is is the same as what you just said. It's just sort of boiling it down to one number um, simplistically. But but that, that massive spike in the output um, surplus is what has people like you or people like me or the rest of the policy analysis community, the financial community sort of thinking about how the Fed's going to react. Will... I mean, it's also interesting to think about, too, is the CBO right on potential GDP? So they basically right. assume that potential GDP isn't going to grow that much because of the new tax bill, um, i.e. there are some positive effects, but nothing dramatic, uh, which is basically in line with what the private sector thinks for the most part, I think. Um, but maybe the tax bill has a really big positive effect and potential GDP is much higher and productivity takes off. Well, if that's the case, then the Fed doesn't have to offset anything at all. Um, on the other hand, maybe potential GDP is much lower and productivity actually goes down, in which right. case there's a real problem. So there's a lot of moving pieces to this report, but you know, I think at the end of the day, it, it's fascinating to start playing with some of the variables around, okay, what does the Fed think is possible? What is um, the likely um, baseline for what's going to happen? And mm -hmm. how do you get those two things to sort of to sort of match up without getting too far out into, you know, crazy scenarios about the effects of the different policy outcomes. So um, you had a really good chart talking about how optimistic the CBO was versus versus the Fed. Can right. you just and you mentioned that in the prior um, in the in the prior segment you, you spoke there. Can you just reiterate what the numbers are in terms of what the CBO thinks the Fed is going to get to versus what the Fed thinks the Fed is going to get to? Sure. So the, the, and the thing to keep in mind here is that, you know, CBO has the benefit or the advantage of using a single internally consistent model here. Um, I think they actually have several inputs into it, but it's all internally consistent in the end. Um, whereas what we the, the the economic projections that we see from the Fed are actually a compilation of all the participants in the FOMC, uh, and so and generally what we quote is the median of all of those you know fifteen or sixteen depending on the year involved uh, projections for the economy um, for one of a number of different metrics, and so you know 
So for so let me so for example, just uh, so for example, in 2020, I think that the Fed is at uh, the median nominal policy rate at the end of 2020 that you see when you look at the FOMC summary of economic projections from their March meeting is I, I don't have it in front of me, but I think it's three and three eighths right now. Um, so 3.38% uh, nominal. Whereas what the CBO has is 400 basis points. Um, so uh, more than two hikes more cumulatively by the end of 2020 uh, in nominal space. Uh, now, two, now, a couple things to mention there. One, CBO, I, I'm, I'm fairly confident that what CBO is using is they have some probably mechanical uh, reaction function that they're using in their forecasting. So they probably have a Taylor rule of some sort where you know, it's it's an equation that looks at something like the output gap or the unemployment gap at inflation and adjusts rates uh, accordingly based on some equation. It, it may have a look back feature where it's it has a little bit of inertia in it, um, but it, it's something that can be boiled down to equation, I'm guessing. And that is telling it that you get up to 400 basis points by the end of 2020. doesn't mean it's wrong, but and, and, and when you do macroeconomic, macroeconomic modeling, Right, like it, it's you know, it, people think that the point of macroeconomic modeling is to always get things right. I actually find it a lot more helpful in modeling if your goal isn't necessarily to get things right, but to show sort of what a, you know what the state of things are under a set of very um, uh, transparent and sort of debatable assumptions are, so that you can see like a sensitivity analysis of how the economy reacts. So with something like the Fed reaction function, it's not necessarily that it's going that they're going to follow an inertial Taylor rule 99 or something like that. It's more that you want to understand, OK, if they react equally to deviations from their uh, inflation target and their unemployment target, you know, this is what we would expect them to do um, going forward. Um, the, the other thing I'll say, the second thing I'll say, too, is that. Um, when you look at the Fed forecasts, so they have three and three eighths percent at the end of 2020 as their policy rate. And then unemployment, and I should probably just bring up the. I have it up if you need. So they're, they're uh, median. Yeah, so the median Fed funds rate, they, it's 3.4, but rounded the uh, three and three eighths. Their median unemployment rate projection. So this is U3 unemployment, which leaves out large chunks of people who are um, uh, either underemployed or who have been looking for a long time or people who have dropped out of the labor force but still want a job. So anyhow, with that caveat, the um, March uh, SEP projection for uh, the median unemployment or median SEP projection for the unemployment rate in 2020 is 3.6% uh, versus 3.6% in 2019 and 2018, 3.8%. Um, so yeah, there's that number. So the, and thank you. So the, the, and the thing to keep in mind about that is again, that's just the median of um, more than a dozen different participants, all of whom have their own, you know, either formal or informal internal models in mind as they submit these mod as they submit these numbers to the summary of economic projections. So, so three and three eighths on the on the nominal funds rate side, um, paired with a three point six percent unemployment rate. 
um, on the unemployment side. And I think that they have a slight overshoot, like 2.1% PCE uh, at the end of 2020. Uh, yeah. Um, those are not necessary. Those numbers are not necessarily internally consistent with one another, right? Like one median could be from one participant and the other median could end up being another participant and they aren't necessarily indicative of the same reaction function. Um, and, and in fact, what, what's interesting is the, um, as a side note, so the, the Fed's big macro model, Furbus, is released publicly um, uh, usually, you know, usually once a quarter um, after the summary of economic projections. What's really funny about Furbus is that it has this illustrative baseline forecast built into it that looks out you know, I think it's like it looks forward 100 years, um, but it's con because it's public, it's constrained to um, to match the median of the summary of economic projections. Uh, so when you like when you dig into the model, you know, um, inflation will be whatever the median of the participants in the FOMC say it will be for whatever the last summary of economic projections is. Same thing with unemployment, same thing with real growth, um, et cetera. And uh, what's really funny is talking with staff members who produce it, oftentimes these projections in the summary of economic projections just aren't compatible with one another. Like they, they, don't, they don't mesh well. And so you have to make sort of heroic assumptions elsewhere in the model to get them to create one single uh, internally consistent forecast. Um, so that's one thing to bear in mind as we talk about, you know, you know, CBO has rates going up to 400 basis points by the end of um, 2020, and they have an unemployment rate that troughs at 3.3% instead of 3.6%. Um, we, we can quibble with their assumptions going in, which is a very helpful thing to do. And it's a good thing to do because CBO, they're not gods. They don't, they're very good at this, but they're not, you know, this is macroeconomic forecasting. They have the same error bands as anyone else. Nobody um, in macroeconomic forecasting is infallible and everybody gets it wrong all the time. That's absolutely right. And um, it's, it's, I, I, the, the, the thing that I think sets CBO and the Fed apart is that they make more educated errors, I think, than a lot of other people, right? And you can understand, and they have good reasons for making um, uh, errors at the end of the day. Uh, whereas I think, I, whereas I think, with a lot of forecasts, you know, the errors are just simply, uh, you know, they were overreacting to something in the short-term data, and they didn't, you know, they didn't take into account something else that was going on. Or there's an ideological bend or something like that. Yeah, I, mean, exactly. I, I, I don't have very much tolerance for the sort of, you know, pick on the Fed because they're not good at forecasting approach to, you know, criticizing what the Fed does. And 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 I, this is true of other government agencies as well. And even some, you know, private sector or supranational agencies, you know, if you take a body like the Fed, if you take a body like um, the ECB or the CBO or um, even a place like the IMF, um, you know, what you have is very large staffs of very competent people who are working to produce like, you know, um, they have a model for the world and they, they're willing to say, this is what our model is specified on and here's how we're going to do it. And, you know, you may not come out with, um, uh, you may not agree with that conception of the world that like the way that model works, but they are internally consistent and they're working to do the best they can with their model as opposed to trying to sell you something um, exactly. yeah. related to, I don't know, their market forecast or whatever. So, you know, that I guess I guess the way I would describe it is a lot of these institutions are much more resistant to narrative. They're not 
totally resistant to narrative, but they're more resistant to narrative than I think a lot of us in the private sector tend to be. That's right. And and, and they have their own blind spots, right? Like, you know, CBO, CBO and the Fed can be very conservative, not politically conservative, but um, it's very it's very slow for them to adapt to sort of new ideas, new thinking about you know, the way the economy works. And that's not necessarily a bad thing in a lot of cases, right? You want them to not just embrace whatever the latest fad and modeling or economic forecasting is. And and the way they do it is they have, you know, like they have official forecasts and official way of doing things. And then they let their economists sort of play around in working papers or inside work, you know, you know, pushing the envelope on uh, new methodologies of doing things. And so, um, that's that, that you know th- that sounds like as decent a way to sort of balance you know tried and true ideas versus new ways of doing things as can be possible. But it does mean that you know you know for example you know the Congressional Budget Office you know talking about a, a, a topic like crowding out in the economy from debt you know like it's it's uh, the 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 sections in the Budget and Economic Outlook that talk about that could have been written you know, before the crisis. And yet we have eight years of data since then that suggests that the story is a lot more complicated than just more debt means higher interest rates, right? So- Or higher yeah. inflation or, or higher, whatever. Exactly. Yeah, exactly. yeah. The, 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 um, and uh, that actually is a nice segue into our next uh, subject here, um, talking about what the CBO thinks is going to happen to the federal deficit um, and whether you think that matters. So just to provide some numerical background, um, this is uh, April 2018. So they're, they're what they updated this week versus June of last year, um, their, their last long-term forecast. Um, the CBO thinks that the impact of various policy and economic changes since then uh, mean that in 2018, uh, the deficit will be, um, sorry, one second here, I got into the wrong spot, uh, will be 1.2%, 1.18% larger relative to GDP than it was previously. Uh, in 2019, it'll be 1.3%, and then it'll run about 90 to 95 basis points above uh, where it was before relative to GDP for the following three years, so 2020 through 2022. Uh, after that, it trails off a little bit and, and ends up being a smaller deficit than previously projected for 2026 and 2027 right. by a quarter and 65 basis points of GDP. Right. Uh, debt to GDP ratio, so federal government debt, pub, federal government debt held by the public, basically treasury bonds. Um, well, treasury bills, notes, bonds, etc. Yep. But, yep. Yep. Uh, federal debt to GDP, uh, they see rising by 54 basis points uh, relative to GDP uh, in 2019. Um, so 54 basis points higher than they had previously forecast, 90 basis points higher in 2020, 1.7% higher in 2021, and a steady upward slog until it peaks out at 4.2% of GDP higher than previously estimated in 2025. So those are the sort of basic numbers, the delta on this forecast, like, like the, the change from the last forecast to this forecast, um, to put some absolute numbers on it, uh, the deficit uh, will peak at 5.4% of GDP in 2022. Um, it'll be three point, uh, it'll be 4% this year and sort of climb to 5.4% of GDP and then um, gradually trail off um, before zigzagging around 5%. Yeah. Um, debt to GDP will, uh, it, it, for uh, 2018 will be 78%. And it will um, eventually get as high. It'll eventually get near 100% of GDP by the end of 
uh, the forecast period in 2028. Okay, uh, so. A lot of numbers there. Yep. Um, I'm sorry for listeners that aren't used to having a bunch of numbers spewed at them. You may want to go and listen back through that uh, just to get a handle on it, um, just for your own edification. Ernie, is this a problem? Do we need to be worried about this? Or is this something that is not necessarily ideal, not necessarily benign, but something that can be digested? So, so that's a really good question. And I think it's a really complicated answer. And I want to and I want to sort of preface this by saying, and I know I'm not supposed to say this in finance a lot, but I, I, I have a very low confidence in my answer. So I'm, I'm. Oh no, that's I, good. We love that. That's okay, awesome. Good. good. <laughs> I want to, you know, I, you're taught in finance to always, you know, say things with 100% confidence and etc. And no, 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 I, no. I, that, be, I, I feel like what we need in fiscal policy right now is more humility from all sides. Um, not just you know the the CBO you know sort of classical economists, but I think that we need it from Keynesians, New Keynesians, and other people too. That like we 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 haven't gotten the rubric right yet, um, and so um, every everybody has valuable contributions at this point in the debate, which is good. I try to read a lot of different perspectives on fiscal policy because I think that there are. Even even with per- perspectives that I disagree with, there are often nuggets that I think are useful and good insights. But I don't think that we have a grand sort of unified understanding of fiscal policy at this point in time in the world economy right now. Which is n- nothing against fiscal policy. Like you know, the, the the dirty secret at the Federal Reserve is that nobody is quite confident how inflation involves either, and that's one of their mandates. So um, this is not unique to macroeconomics. Um, but let me let, let me give one number to kind of put all those numbers that you said in perspective and then dig into a, maybe on a scale of where I'm most confident and then where I'm least confident, what, what we can derive from that. So um, I said at the beginning that I think a reasonable base case, my personal base case, is that Congress is going to extend this budget deal that they just passed um, come 2020 when it's set to expire. So that's going to add more to the debt than what CBO is projecting. Um, and when the pieces of the Tax Cuts and Jobs Act that are set to expire, like full expensing come 2023, and like the individual tax cuts that are set to expire in 2026, Congress is going to extend those. They may not extend all of them. It may be like uh, the fiscal t- cliff in 2012, you remember under Obama and Boehner, where they um, the 2001-2003 the tax cuts were expiring and they ended up they ended up extending, you know, 95% of them, but not quite all of them. But I think the bulk of those of the Tax Cuts and Jobs Act is going to be extended when it when it comes before Congress. Um, I should note that doesn't necessarily mean it's going to be a smooth process. You know, there could be a lot of uncertainty going into it. There, this could royal financial markets temporarily, and so. Um, in fact, you know, I'm, I'm looking back at Congress uh, and how they've behaved over the last several years. I might say that that's likely that it won't be a smooth process, and that there's going to be brinksmanship and possibly even government shutdowns involved. And so, markets should be prepared for that. But at the end of the day, I think that they will extend them. The implication of that is that at the end of 2028, debt will end up under CBO projections to be 105% of GDP. The, the last time we were even close to debt at 105% of GDP um, was in the aftermath of World War II, when we were, I think at, in 1946, we were at 109% of GDP. But that was a very different macroeconomic context because we were demobilizing after that um, 
growth in the United States took off. Um, we had a small recession, but then it took off after that. And so debt just precipitously dropped as a percent of GDP after World War II. We don't see anything like that on the horizon right now. And, uh, and, and so that's a good segue to start with where I'm most confident in what CBO is talking about. Um, I agree with CBO that nothing that's happened since last June, none of these fiscal shocks are game changers in terms of potential GDP. Um, that you're gonna get a, a short sugar high from spending growth and tax cuts. You might get a little bit of extra investment from the um, expensing provisions in the tax cuts, particularly if they're made permanent over time. But again, like, you, you, Congress is probably not going to get to it until 2023, and there's going to be a lot of brinksmanship and uncertainty going into it. And so um, that's not going to be helpful for businesses, I think, in that year. But I think at the end of the day, that they'll extend it. So you might get a little bit uh, in terms of potential GDP there, but I, I, I haven't seen anything in the last uh, year that has sort of, for me, changed the story that we're looking at a 2% um, potential growth economy. Um, over, over the infinite horizon. Um, there can, of course, be unanticipated shocks to that. We could get a productivity shock like we had beginning in 1995 that nobody anticipated and that ends up you know, raising growth to 2.5% or 3%. Um, uh, if that happened, that would be great because that would lower um, both deficits and debt as a percent of GDP. Um, not just because of a denominator effect, but also because at, when there's more growth, you get more tax revenue. And so just even nominal deficits and debt go down um, as a result of that. So that so there is that upside case. There's also a downside case as well. You know, we're you know, we're, we're just to give one. We're um, actively talking about curbing immigration to the United States. Um, that's going to have a negative impact on potential growth and, and may have an impact on long-term innovation in this country and, um, and long-term demographic issues in this country. Uh, so there are downside risks to that too. Okay, so that's, so, so basically the bottom line is when it comes to sort of the outlook of the economy and, and where things are going, I, 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 uh, I think that CBO has a very reasonable fiscal forecast for where debt is going. Um, now the question is, should we worry about deficits and debt? <clears throat> The thing that worries me about deficits is it's like putting bricks on the accelerator in your car when you're on the highway, right? It's if you're running deficits north of three percent of three percent of GDP, and you know when you when you extend all of these things, you know CBO is looking at deficits that are getting above four percent of GDP, five percent of GDP. Um, just think about it from an economic policy standpoint. You're really adding a lot of fuel to the American economy uh, at a time of full employment. Now, if you have a very disciplined economic policy regime and lots of coordination between the monetary authority, the Federal Reserve, and Congress, um, who are all on the same page about how the economy is going, that could work, right? You could run a high-pressure economy um, that, uh, that 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 doesn't that doesn't make easy errors and is able to sustain that for a long period of time. I don't have confidence that we're in that kind of regime right now. I think that the more bricks you put on the accelerator, the harder it is to steer the car. 
and you're just more likely to get into a crash because you make a fundamental policy mistake, particularly when you have the Federal Reserve, who's smart, but they're, you know, they're sort of they're in their own realm over here. And then you have Congress, which is in uh, a totally different political and policy realm. And by the way, they're not, um, uh, uh, you know, Congress is Congress is not Congress does not view their their charge as countercyclical policy, right? Like. I think that's actually like the biggest understatement you've made so far. (laughs) If anything, I think, you know, Congress since certainly for my entire adult life has has viewed their job as to be as pro cyclical as possible, which is as from an purely like an economic theory perspective, you know, we can we can leave aside the political considerations of why that may be or who may be responsible, whatever. But the ultimate outcome is pro-cyclicality from the fiscal authority is the number one dumbest thing you can do. It's like, it's like, it's just, there's no need for it, especially in the United States where we have full monetary sovereignty and so on and so forth. So I just, it's exactly. so frustrating. And, 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 and to bring this full circle to where we started, you know, one of the nice things about coming from an interdisciplinary subject matter, like public policy is, you know, on the one hand, I can understand sort of the debates about, you know, there's a better way of doing this, which is that, you know, the fiscal authority and the monetary authority can coordinate, and we don't need to do this entirely through monetary policy. Um, and as long as, you know, as long as the fiscal authority is willing to be countercyclical, we can manage the economy. That makes perfect sense to me. And then I look over here to the political reality, which is that there's this, there's this um, time inconsistency, is what we would call it in monetary policy, right? When the time comes for Congress to actually be countercyclical and cut spending in good times. Um, and, and we should be clear that when we're talking about cutting spending, uh, there is no one who doesn't, you know, it, it, sometimes people act like there's like a line item in the budget that's waste, fraud, and abuse. And all we have to do is cut that line item and, and, and we're good. Oh yeah, complete fiction. Right, exactly. Like when you're cutting something, you're cutting something that some constituent benefits from. And we lose sight of this when we talk about Medicare or Social Security or even defense spending. And I think that there's a lot of waste in defense spending, too. And yet, you know, there's a reason why defense contractors uh, divvy out their jobs throughout all 50 states, right, is to um, is to is to broaden the benefit of what they do as widely as possible. Um, so so when the time comes to be counter cyclical, it's it's to me, it's just it's it's completely understandable why. Congress gets cold feet and isn't willing to do it. And like you pointed out, does in fact the complete opposite of it, uh, as we've seen in the last year, which is- So yeah, so I, get, I guess to, to pose a question to you then, I mean, the, the framework I, I kind of come from is if inflation isn't a problem, and inflation is not a problem currently, it hasn't been since at least 2007, arguably uh, on a core basis, it hasn't since the 1980s. Um, if inflation is not a problem, is not distorting the allocation of resources, is not uh, massively influencing, um, you know, who has the ability to provide for themselves, you know, across the economy. So distributional consequences um, isn't uh, leading to extremely high real rates of interest in the private market, so on and so forth. Um, if, if inflation is not a problem, then what's the issue with adding more accelerator to uh, the car, if the car is going at a slow speed, right, and is right. is is 
you know, forget the uh, second derivative. Think about the first derivative first. If the car is going 10 miles an hour and we're on the freeway, why wouldn't we want to get more bricks on the accelerator and get us up towards the speed limit? Right. Um, do you, so I, I guess the question is, do you think that what we're going to see in terms of this massive expansion in fiscal policy in a, in a, in a strong part of the relatively strong part of the cycle, do you think that's going to get inflation back into a place it hasn't been in 30 years or, or is it, is that so exogenous to what goes on in the, in the, in the fiscal policy space that it doesn't really matter it, this, this, this quote unquote crazy experiment isn't going to have an impact and, you know, inflation is going to stay low and therefore there doesn't need to be a monetary offset and therefore right. this isn't a problem. So so let me tell you where I'm sympathetic to that view right now. And and this plays into some of the other work I do which is on demographics, labor markets, that sort of thing. I, I, I my personal view is that we're not at full employment yet. Um and and that view is based on the fact that when you look at margins of non-participation, that is people who are not even looking for work. Um, prime age people who are not looking for work, people between 25 and 54 who are in the prime working years of their life and not looking for work. You know, this was a problem, um, the, the rise in prime age non-participation along lots of different reasons, um, uh, disability, education, staying home and taking care of family, um, e- even retirement, um, which is interesting among the prime age population, people saying that they're retired and that's why they're not looking at work. Those margins were rising for much of the uh, for much of the Great Recession, and we uh, and in many cases we thought that they were permanently rising that those that those people would never come back, and only now over the last couple of years are we beginning to see those margins actually decline. People who were you know I wrote a to- a piece in the New York Times about this about disability non participation. Um, how it been rising for more than 20 years as a percent of the population. And so economists naturally concluded that there was something secular going on in the economy and that those people were never coming back. Now, something secular could still be going on in the economy. There could still be an upward trend there. But since 2014, it's um, that that headcount has come down by 7%, which is unprecedented since we began collecting data on it in 1994. Um, we're, uh, you see sort of similar turns down in um, people who are who want a job but are just discouraged and so they're not looking for work anymore. Uh, even a little bit in people who are enrolled in school. It hasn't been quite as sharp a turn as what we've seen in disability, but people who are uh, workers who are in school and not looking for work um, has has started turning down, and a lot of those people are finding jobs. We're just now digging into the most tenacious non-participation margins, the 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 sort of deepest scars, I think, of the last two recessions. And that's that's another point that's often forgotten is that. Um, a lot of these scars date back from the 2001 recession. We never fully recovered from that recession before 2008 hit. So we have a lot of work to do to get our economy back to the health it was in in 2000. And and I know that there are some people who argue that where we were in 2000 was unsustainable. It was a bubble. Um, I think in terms of the labor market, um, I, I, I don't accept that. I think that you know if people were employed and you know the um, you know, the tech sector that that burst in 2001 was a very small share of the economy. We can get employment back up to the numbers that they were in 2000, but we need time to be able to do it. And so where I'm sympathetic to the accelerator argument, 
that that the sort of the the, the way you pose and. And as haphazard as it is, as sort of uncoordinated it is, where I'm a little bit sympathetic with the fiscal shock that we've had in the last year is that, you know, maybe this is the medicine that we need to bring those final tenacious margins of non-participation back into the labor market and to really grow the labor market to, um, uh, to, to where it really is at full health. But where I, where I sort of where my worries come in then is you said inflation's not a problem. Um, I, I agree. I definitely agree with that over, you know, certainly over the course of this cycle, low inflation has been the problem, not high inflation. And I am not an inflation hawk by any means. I don't see inflation lurking around the corner everywhere I look. But on the other hand, we have to set an inflation target somewhere, right? We, we you know, the, 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 the Federal Reserve has to pick some regime of meeting its inflation mandate. Now we can have a nice debate about what that should be, whether it should be 2%, whether it should be 4%, whether it should be a price level target, whether it should be a nominal GDP target. Those are good debates to have. Um, I, I think a lot of the arguments that we should not worry about deficits because inflation isn't a problem yet actually really boil down to people saying that they want a different inflation regime. Because I'll be honest, we're, you know, we're at, when you look at high frequency measures of PCE and core PCE inflation, we're above 2% on several of them. There are a couple of idiosyncratic factors that are still weighing on them. But if you look at like the three month annualized, the six month annualized, we're above 2%. Um, we shouldn't be, we shouldn't base, and, 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 to, be, and, to, and to end this, we, we shouldn't base policy on high frequency measures because they'll turn, they can turn very quickly. But, um, but we're getting close to the point where we're gonna we're gonna be at the point where the Fed has chosen to set its target at two percent, and then we can't really make the argument anymore that we're below target. Maybe we can make the argument that we have to make up for ground that we've lost over the last several decades, and that's you know like a price level target type argument, and that's a good argument to have, I think. But I think inflation is going to be a consideration relatively soon in all of this. Do you then have a view around what the I mean? separate from the CBO estimates, do you have a, an estimate or like a like a, a range, you know, like you said, low confidence, um, but a, a range for <laughs> assuming the Fed doesn't deviate too much from what it says it's currently going to do, um, or assuming it doesn't deviate too much from what the CBO says it's currently going to do or whatever, do you have an estimate for what the impact of this fiscal um, yeah. shift is going to do to inflation, assuming you know, relative to what the what the previously forecast pace was, because, you know, we, we generally are, are expecting that uh, core PCE is going to get back to around 2% over the next couple of years, regardless of what happens with fiscal. Okay, layering on top of that, the delta in fiscal, how big do you think in inflation terms, this impact is going to be based on, you know, and this can be totally finger in the air stuff, but yeah, well, so it, it, and, and, and the other complicated thing with that question, right, is that when you run that through a model, your you, the 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 Fed in your model is reacting to inflationary pressure and then offsets. So let me give you an example. So we ran. So we don't have like a house view necessarily on what the uh, what the Fed or the inflation impact will be of this fiscal shock. Um, but when you run a when you run this fiscal shock, both the the budget deal and the tax cuts through the Fed's macro model, Furbus. Um, 
And, you know, you, you do a sensitivity analysis because there are lots of different ways that you can calibrate Furbus. Um, you get you get a middle you get a middle of the road estimate of, you know, um, plus 90 or so basis points to growth to, to real GDP growth in 2008, coming down to about 40 basis points in 2019. And then it's virtually gone by the time you get to 2020. There isn't much of an impact on inflation in the model. I think core PCE goes up 10 basis points, um, maybe 15 basis points um, in the model, but that's because the Fed is reacting to it. And again, it's very sensitive to, to the reaction function that you tell the Fed to do, but you know something along the lines of an extra two hikes as a result of this, um, uh, of this shock is what the model suggests in the short term. Um, so, so in other words, you don't get a lot on the inflation side, but that's precisely because the Fed is offsetting it by reacting to it at the end of the day and, you know, at around two hikes. So, so convert just to do that conversion back. So yeah. basically fiscal stimulus that leads to higher demand that leads to higher inflation, but that inflation is capped because the Fed intervenes and the FRB US model basically says, okay, we think that intervention is going to be roughly two hikes worth in order to keep core PCE around 2% relative to what the stimulus would would produce. Um, and so that, you know, in Fed hike terms, it's worth two percentage, two hikes uh, impact on core PCE yeah. over the next several years. Uh, that, is that is that like a fair, I just wanted to restate that in for myself. That, that's, yeah, that's a, that, that, that's a good sort of back of the envelope way of, of, of the, yeah, of the mechanics of how Furbus is, is interpreting this fiscal shock. Okay, so to just, just to push that a little bit further, two hikes worth doesn't sound like all that much. Mm-hmm. I mean, really, like, you know, in inflation terms, that's what uh, an additional... 25 basis points maybe over a couple of years in terms of core PC, maybe a little bit less than that. Like, that, like that's not a, that much. So really, I mean, it, despite this being a quote unquote unprecedented or however you want to sort of frame it, and it's been framed in some pretty aggressive ways um, uh, by other commentators, despite all that, it's still not going to have that big of an impact on inflation. Like all the Fed has to do is hike mm-hmm. twice to offset it. Mm-hmm. That's not that much. So, so what's the harm in, in letting that in in not doing that offset? And again, I, I you know I don't necessarily subscribe to the view that the Fed shouldn't offset, but I, I just just to push back against the narrative of oh this is going to have a massive impact on inflation. Sure, exactly. And 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 I think that that's a good question to ask, and we should always be kicking the tires on these assumptions as you know as we're thinking about them. Um, I, 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 so. I should say too that I, I don't think that uh, all of my worries are sort of beyond the five-year horizon with this. Maybe, maybe like beyond the three-year horizon with this. I don't think that in the next two or three years um, we're going to see massive inflation. Um, certainly, certainly not massive deviations from the Fed's two percent inflation target. And they've already made clear that it's a symmetric target. So they're okay with going a bit above 2%. Um, and that's actually, that, that's that's one thing that I'll say about the difference between reality and a model, right? Is that the model treats the 2% inflation target as a hard stop that is going to cause the Fed to react. Whereas in fact, um, the Fed, e- even if it doesn't adapt a new regime like a price level targeting regime, 
um, you know, Chairman Powell has said, this is a symmetric target. We're willing to tolerate a little bit of overshoot on inflation. You know, that could mean 2.2%, 2.3%, that sort of thing. Um, so if we get there, they may sort of look at it and shrug. And that's something, and that that's the sort of, you know, qualitative call that a model can't really, um, can't really capture. And I'll add too that if, if in sort of Earth 2, where we didn't have this fiscal shock and the Fed was like, all right, well, nothing's really going on, so we're going to stick to 2%, you may have actually improved the outcome a little bit because you're pushing them, this, this shock is pushing the Fed to the limits of their tolerance rather than have the Fed sort of set their tolerance just at straight 2% inflation over time. So I, th that is definitely a possibility. Um, I think where we start getting into risks, and I don't want to be a, I don't want to say that this is definite or that I'm being a doomsayer here, but we have to think in terms of risks to this approach. I think the risk comes around 2020, like I said before, because if we think that if we think that nothing fundamentally has changed in the economy, and we think that um, potential GDP is still roughly the same path as it was before in the long term, and we think that the neutral um, interest rate, what the Fed calls our star, is basically like um, it's the interest rate. It's the interest rate where um, uh, economic growth is in equilibrium. Um, so the Fed thinks that um, nominal R star, the long term, sort of where they want to end up in the long term, is still uh, two and seven eighths. It's a little bit below three hundred basis points, um, and yet. They're, 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 they are hiking above 300 basis points in the short term over the next few years in order to offset this, um, uh, in order to offset this, this fiscal shock. I think the worry is what happens when that sugar rush from the fiscal shock wears off and suddenly the Fed is too tight, right? And, and the Fed come, they, they're, they're in a world where they should be at 300 basis points and they're at 350 basis points. Well, the, the the response to that is, well, why don't they just cut, right? Like, why wouldn't you just cut from 350 to 300 if that's what you thought was the right thing to do? Um, and the uh, I, I, I think that the worry is that in real time, right, the Fed could easily, it could be unclear how tight the Fed really is relative to where they should be until it's too late for there to be a negative impact on the economy, right? Because um, there's so, you know, the, the, you know, we pretend I mean, like, that, that's what happened in 2007, 2008. Right? Exactly. Like, so the Fed should have been at zero probably by Q4 of 2007. It took them another two years. And there were really good reasons to understand why that would be the case. But, you know, if, if you had perfect foresight, you would have been cutting rates a heck of a lot faster and a heck of a lot sooner. That's right. And and, and, and I think and, and of course, too, you have different ideologies within the Fed. Um, uh and, 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 and those ideologies can spill over into other members. Um, I, I don't want to say ideologies because there are there are inflation hawks on the Fed who are very smart people. And even if I disagree with them on certain outlooks, you know, they make um, many of them make very good cases for their outlook. And so it's, it's good to sort of hear those perspectives. And they could be right at some point in the future. Um, I just don't think that they're right right now. Um, but if they're sort of, you know, if we do see. Um, PCE getting uh, inflation getting to 2.2, 2.3, even 2.4%. Um, there are going to be a lot of competing perspectives and interpretations of that data, and it's going to be, and it might end up being very hard for the FOMC to reject the perspective that, hey, 
you know, we're we're not too tight. If anything, we're we're not tight enough because we're above our inflation target right now. And it, it could it could exacerbate a policy error um, a couple of years down the line. So 2020 is the year to watch. Uh, before we sign off, this has been an awesome conversation, Ernie, and, and we're, we've, I've really enjoyed this. Um, we like to do a trading rich, trading cheap segment. So I'm just going to throw some words at you and you're going to tell me if they're trading rich or trading cheap. And then we, maybe I'll ask for a little bit of explanation. So uh, trading, um, so trading rich is overrated. Trading cheap is underrated. Is that You got, All it. Right, got so it. So starting off, I, you do a lot of work in R. Does that mean Excel is trading rich or trading cheap? Oh, uh, Excel is always trading cheap. It's Excel is vastly underrated. I tend to think the same thing. And yet there's this sort of warfare that goes on occasionally on Twitter over whether Excel should be banned or not. Nope. <laughs> nope. It's, 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 it's every single job, no matter what statistical language I've learned, um, uh, every single day, I, the first thing I do is open Excel. Um, it's the most versatile thing out there. Yeah, I agree. Uh, okay. The DC area is currently eyeing two candidates as a place for HQ2, Amazon's second headquarters unit, to land. Um, is HQ2 itself trading rich or trading cheap? Um, I'm going to say uh, uh, the, 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 the sort of the, the emphasis on it and the price tag and the, and the, the blank checks that have been offered to it by different public officials. Um, from a from a broad perspective, it's trading rich. I think for I think for the area it ends up going, it's going it's trading cheap. It's it's going to be um, it's going to be a very good investment. This is it, 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 my when I was an undergrad, I did my thesis and a lot of my research on um, uh, stadiums and and sports stadiums and and public financing and 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 sports stadiums are horrible public investments right because they don't produce a lot of jobs they're low wage jobs they, there's a lot of infrastructure costs and they're not used for a lot of the year um, and, and and unfortunately a lot of the perspective in HQ2 has been through that lens that I've seen HQ2 is a much different proposition than a sports stadium right so uh, so yeah so it's I, I think that it's wrong when the Secretary of Transportation for the state of Maryland comes out and says, we're going to write a blank check to Amazon and give them whatever they want so that they come to Maryland. That's like, no, that's horrible. That's that's an awful way to approach public policy. At the same time, um, we should be willing, you know, if you're a locality, you should probably be willing to pay a lot to have Amazon HQ2 come to your town because that's a lot of, you know, 50,000 well-paying jobs. That's going to have a whole nother ecosystem around it. Uh, it's good. It's, it's valuable. Okay. A uh, lot of discussion recently around why uh, labor force participation has has been weaker among especially young men um, and prime yeah. age men. Uh, are, is the video game thesis around uh, labor force <laughs> participation? So, you know, young men are just not getting jobs because they'd rather sit on the couch and play video games, which admittedly right. there are days. I love my job. I really like yep. working for Bespoke and I love what I do, but there are days when I definitely would rather sit on the couch and play some video games. So intuitively, yep. this makes a lot of sense. The data, I'm not so, much so sure it's there. So do you think it's trading rich or trading cheap? Oh, it's trade. There is no richer trade right now in economic data than the video game thesis. Um, you don't see any. There's no way it makes sense. I, 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 I the, the, the only credit I will give it is um, that it may be capturing a, a hidden variable 
Um, so like, just to give one possible explanation, right? The real problem, one of the problems here could be um, high educational debt or high housing prices that cause um, young men to live with their parents, right? And um, which gives them a security blanket that makes them pickier about which job they end up taking. That's a much more plausible thesis. And then that shows up in the data as uh, young men are playing video games more and they don't have jobs. And but video but the causal relationship is not video games. It's something else entirely. But that said, um, somebody else who we um, who we follow on Twitter, uh, Gray Kimbra, uh, has been analyzing this in the time use data. And, and his his argument is much more fundamental than that. It's just not even in the data like there's just not. Um, there hasn't been a shift in, in video game playing over the last couple of years, the way that, um, uh, that paper argued. So I, yeah, definitely trading risk. Fortnite is popular, but not that popular. Okay. <laughs> and, and I, and I will say I tried playing Fortnite and, uh, it was fun for an hour. And then the, the, the 14th, the 14th time I got shotgunned in the head, I was like, all right, I'm just, I'm never going to have the time to get good. At this. So. <laughs> okay. So last one, trading rich or trading cheap, uh, the place that hosted you for your, uh, post-secondary education, uh, San Francisco in the Bay area. Yes. Um, oh, okay. Just in general, just in general, uh, just, is it trading rich or trading? I mean, for a while it was pretty indisputably trading rich, just given how crazy home prices were getting and, yeah. you know, relative to the rest of the country. And now in the last couple of years, we've seen other metros, you know, start to grow a lot quicker. And, you know, there's some of the shine has come off the Apple with regards to the tech world, you know, stuff yeah. like Uber or Facebook or so on and so forth, Theranos. Um, so maybe the story has changed. Maybe it hasn't. I don't know. What do you think is, is, uh, is San Francisco trading rich or trading cheap? I, th I think it's still, look, I love San Francisco. I went to school there. I'm a native Californian. Uh, I'm a native Southern Californian, but I lived a lot in the Bay Area. I love the Bay Area, um, but it, it is trading rich still. Um, I, I think that we are, I, I, they're finally beginning to be more cognizant of the fact that they're trading rich. And even if they don't necessarily agree with the idea of building more housing more broadly, um, I, I think that there is now, you know, I, I have friends who, run tech firms out there and um, they're beginning to look, you know, like up in Sacramento or down in Los Angeles for talent rather than sticking entirely in the Bay Area. So, um, I, you know, I, everything is an equilibrium or every, everything is an adjusted equilibrium. Everything will sort of shift over time. I think eventually the Bay Area will get less crazy and it'll be a livable place again for normal people. Um, but it's not there yet. It's still trading rich. And with that, we will close things out. Uh, Ernie Tedeschi of Evercore ISI. You can follow him on Twitter. It's at Ernie, E-R-N-I-E, Tedeschi, T-E-D-E-S-C-H-I. Uh, he's great on Twitter and posts all kinds of really useful economic charts and stuff. So you should definitely follow him on Twitter. And Ernie, uh, thanks very much for, for joining us. This is a lot of fun, man. Thanks, George. This was great.
Thanks for joining us this week on the Bespoke Cast. Once again, I'm Bespoke Investment Group's macro strategist, George Perks. If you enjoy Bespoke Cast, please consider reviewing the podcast in the iTunes Store or on your favorite podcast platform. Reviews help us gain visibility and also help us improve the podcast in future episodes. If you'd like to learn more about our firm, please visit bespokepremium.com and follow us on Twitter at Bespoke Invest. Our research includes reports, analysis, commentary, and data sets sent out daily. Special thanks to the Free Music Archive for the music featured in this episode. The track is called Marathon Man by Jason Shaw and is made available under the Creative Commons license. Please visit freemusicarchive.org for more information. Copyright 2017, Bespoke Investment Group, LLC. The information herein was obtained from sources Bespoke Investment Group, LLC believes to be reliable, but we do not guarantee its accuracy. Neither the information nor any opinions expressed constitute a solicitation of the purchase or sale of any securities or related instruments. Bespoke Investment Group, LLC is not responsible for any losses incurred from any use of this information.